that's all for now, folks. Have a great day. Good. You record Welcome. video or just audio? Both, video and audio. Welcome, everybody. We're now on the final part of the fundamental and insightful uh, series on rabbinic mysticism. And uh, the last two classes, well, the last class and this class will be on how it differs with medieval Kabbalah in practice and content. Uh, Hacham, thank you so much for being here again. Hanukkah Sameach to all. And Bechavah, the stage is yours. Okay, very good. So, folks, this is the final of, out of four classes on uh, rabbinic mysticism and compare and contrast with Kabbalah, which is about half of today's class. But first, I wanted to finish the stories about Pardes, which is the Tosefta and Talmud Bavli in Masechet Hagiga, chapter two, as the famous source for uh, the entire source for rabbinic mysticism. Uh, as I mentioned in passing, but I'll now illustrate it with a, a Talmudic story, both Torah and mysticism require individuation. Individuation is a Jungian term, but it means finding your unique perspective and being able to express it. And you'll see how. So there's a story by Rab. This is mentioned in Masechet uh, Menachot 29b. Amar This relates... One of those many stories that tries to, to paint different aspects of Moses' experience on Har Sinai. Amara Yuda, Amara. Very many Imrot are transmitted to Yeshivat Pumbevita. No, this is Yeshivat Sura um, by his student Rabbi Yehuda. Sha'a, Sha'ala, Moshe Lamarom. So when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he finds God sitting. Sitting is important. We're going to see it later tonight, but it means it's a sense of authority. Only someone with authority can sit in rabbinic thinking. And he was tying crowns to the letters of the Torah. So what does that mean? There are things that are not explicit in the Torah, but the astute person someday can get out of the Torah by comparing and connecting. That's what kosher, ketarim, laotiot. The otiot have, you know, uh, sometimes they have, or some of them have uh, ketarim, little, little zayins that uh, adorn them. And by connecting or tying together different adornments of the text, not the explicit text, but let's say the subtext, you can develop a form of the misvah, you can better understand the misvah or the misvot as a whole. So God is doing this, but that means that they're not explicit. He is just making connections, not disclosing them. So Moses said, who's stopping you from actually writing explicit pesukim about these Connections about these further elaborations for us of the Torah. Amarlo, God responds, Adam Echad Yesh Sheatid Lihot Beso Kamadorot, Ba Akiba Ben Yosef Shemo, Sheatid Lidrosh Alko Kos Vakos, Tilin Tilin Shalalachot. So, as usual, for studying Torah, there's always, there often is an agricultural reference. So um, there's going to be somebody 
after many, many generations, far in the future, far beyond your horizon, Moses. His name is Akiva ben Yosef. And he is going to be able to doresh, means to investigate and transmit on every little kos, means like the, those little zayins you see that are part of the crowns of the letters. Tilin, tilin shel halachot. Rows and rows, but a tilin is like a term used when you have a orchard or a field and you make rows and each row grows a different vegetable or fruit. That's tilin, tel tilin, like tel aviv tilin of halachot. So he's going to be able to find within the subtext of the Torah or the connections between what appears to be nothing but an external detail of the Torah, many, many halachot. Will he be legislating? Yeah, he's legislating. That's what it means. It's not deep in there. It takes a human operating with the Torah to, to generate. That's why Moses could not at the time. Moses said, would you please show this man to me? Turn around. So he was you know, prophetically transported to the Bet Midrash of Rabbi Akiva circa 100, let's say, AD. And he sits in the end, means the last seat of the eight rows. There used to be eight rows of students in uh, Bet Midrash. And at the last row, in the last seat, Moses goes and sits. But he had no clue what they were talking about. He got weak. Psychologically, he was traumatized. But when Ribi Akiva got to one particular topic, his students said to him, Rabbi, where is this from? What's the source of this? Rabbi Akiva said, This is a halacha Moses' mind was calm. But notice he, he heard what was being discussed and le- later labeled but he did not comprehend it. So that tells you a few things. One of which is the famous uh, rabbinic, let's say, Seter Torah, that is not literally, it's not a historical term. It's a legal category. Almost all of the halachot that I know of were not transmitted by Moses. And that, that makes sense here. Rashi on this page has a problem. So he says, oh, this vision happened before this halacha was given to Moses. But that's a stretch and a needless one. Uh, the hahamim take the text. That's what God is telling Moses. You're great, Moses. You're the greatest Navi, whoever was and ever will be. And still... You have to wait for Rabbi Akiva to apply his particular time and space and his particular individuality to to be able to generate these rows and rows and rows of piles of halachot. You can't do it. It's, It's not that it's hidden in the Torah and you're not capable of finding it. It's pointed to in the Torah and you don't know how to make those connections for your context, because for your context, everything is more or less explicit. So to be functional, a truth must be historically bound. There's a truth at a certain point in history and a truth about the same book, different one in a later point in history. Because the truth that the Torah teaches is continuously unfolding, 
people in an early historical period cannot fathom its future development and application. Just like in our own lives, what you knew at age 28 is really different than what you know at age 68. And there's no way your 28-year-old self could ever know what you know at 68. And you have to be uh, realize that, that that happens and, and humans change with time and generations change with time. And that's, that's why individuality and individuation is necessary, not only for studying Torah, but of course, for studying mysticism. So where we left off, <clears throat> we studied the encounter between Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Arach uh, and the perfect, successful transmission of the Rashi Perakim and weaving them together in the two stages of Petiha um, uh, and Harsa'a of Al-Azhar ben Arach with Yohanan ben Zakkai. Now we have four who entered the Pardes together. First of all, that should set off a red flag. <clears throat> You're not supposed to do it together. And apparently they kind of did it themselves, although Rabbi Yehoshua was present, Rabbi Yehoshua being a student of Rabbi Yohanan ben Zakkai, but it wasn't the same direct transmission as was the case between Rabban Yohan ben Zakkai and Rabbi Al-Azhar ben Arach. This is the second story in Masech al-Hagiga and final. And now we see what happens. Four entered the orchard. It's called an orchard because that's where you go to grow and nurture the little nitiot that your teacher scattered in front of you in, an, in a casual way, not in an organized way. It has nothing whatsoever to do with what they tell you. Pardes is an acronym for Peshad, Remez, Dirash. So absolutely not. That's made up in, in the, who knows when, the 12th century. It first appears in the Zohar, I believe. But the original text was not Pardes, it was Kerem. For whatever reason, when they formulated Mishnah Hagiga and Tosefta Hagiga, they changed the word to pardes. Why? I don't know. But it was, it's a Persian word. What does it mean? Maybe this is why. It means the king's garden, a special garden that the king has. That's where paradise comes from. It's a totally Persian word. It's not an acronym. Ben Azai. I call it Ben Azai. Most people say Ben Azai, but you should not put a dagesh in that Zain. It means someone from Aza. He was a gazin. Not to be confused with gazda, but he was a gazin. Now, these were all great hahamim. I mean, super hahamim. Ben Azai, Ben Shimon, Ben Zoma was the, uh, he succeeded in convincing his colleagues that we should recite Misiat Misraim Balelot, as we all recite in the Haggadah and in the, the Halacha He in chapter one of Berachot. Aher, Elisha Ben Abuya was the teacher of Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Akiva, y'all know about Ehad, hisis, vamet. Lehasis means to peak. Like in Shira Shirim, mesis, minaharakim. It means to peak, not to look directly. Generally, it means to peak at something you shouldn't be looking at. And it's a kind of a, a quick, unorderly looking. Ehad, hisis, vamet. One peaked and died. Another peaked and was became mentally ill. He went crazy. Ehad, hisis, vikisis, one peaked uh, and cut those young saplings that the hahamim had planted in him. 
Be'ahad, Allah, Be'shalom, Be'arad, Be'shalom, and one went up in peace and went down in peace. Now we're going to explain all this. Ben Azai hisis famit. Ben Azai died. In the now the Hahamim say in the middle of his dirasha, without being able to finish it, and that was kind of rahmanud on him because he was twisting his mind in places it shouldn't go, and to save him to have an uncomplicated or untainted alam haba, he was killed in the middle of that bad dirasha. This is derasha, obviously the real pishad is something else. But he, the hahamin used this pasuk to say, he who is precious in God's eyes is killed as an act of hesed. Benzoma, ben he peaked and he was meant to, he was touched, means he was like injured. If you find uh, honey, just eat enough that satisfies you. If, now, honey is sweet. So like we know kids, if you give them candy, they'll keep eating more candy, even though they're not hungry. And the, and, and the more they eat, the worse the stomach feels. And even the first few candy bars that you could have been satisfied with and you were hungry for, there, that experience is now tainted because you get sick, you go on a sugar high. Lest you be satiated. So don't, if you're already satiated, you've eaten too much. Just eat enough. Just eat enough. When you're in the middle of eating, sometimes you don't know where the point of satiety is. So you should be careful about that. Because if you become satisfied, you will throw up all of it. And now you're worse off than you were. Not only you don't have the honey, but now your stomach is in a mess and you still need to eat again and everything's tuerto, as we say in Ladino, or uh, means twisted. Elisha, Elisha he peaked and he cut the saplings that were planted in his mind by the hahamim as a, you know, surba merabbanan and haham, etc., before coming to the pardes. That's a problem. This is from Kohelet. Don't let your mouth cause your flesh to sin. It's a derasha. It means something else in Kohelet. Close, but not this. What they mean here is, when you have a mystical vision, whether or not you say it out loud, you're articulating it to yourself. You're saying, aha, this means X, Y, Z. Once you say that, there's a temptation to get locked to those words. What Haham Fa'ur used to call logocentrism. Once you hear the word, you're kind of stuck in that one meaning of the word and you're less flexible. So if you're eating too much, means you're peaking too much at the mystical vision. You just can't help yourself. You like the sugar taste of it. You may end up and that's why the Pasuk says, don't let your mouth cause your entire being to, to sin. And that's what he did. The last one succeeded. Why do we say Allah and Yarad? 
These are the same verbs which parallel the vision of Yaakov. Uh, this particular model is uh, referring to what the Hachamim called descent into the Merkava, Yeridal la Merkava. They imagine in their mind, this is all after the temple was destroyed, but they would picture in their mind going to the attic above the Kodesh HaKodashim, which is uh, Aliyah, and descending down very carefully without looking for, to the side, just like those people, those workers, they used to be lowered into the Kodesh HaKodashim to clean. They had a, like a portal, a porthole. So you lo- imagine you're in an elevator. They lower you in the elevator. You don't even open the doors, but there's like a hole and you can reach your hand through the hole and focus just on what's in front of you. Now, you could peek and look towards the side, but things you're not there to clean. You just want to see the, the sights to see. That's a mistake, uh, like the kiruvin. If you're not cleaning the kiruvin, you shouldn't peek. And so the mashal is used for those who descend into the Merkava, which in their mind was to descend into the Debir, the Kodesh HaKodeshim. That's why we use these verbs. Allah hekatu pomer, and here's by contrast to all the others. They peaked. He didn't. He didn't peak. Moreover, he only went in a direction that his entire soul knew he was being pulled. So that's the pasuk. He's telling God, where you pull me, then and only then, I will follow you. I'll run after you. I want it. But I'm not going to go in a direction you're not letting me go. So that was restraint. The whole point of this story is you must exercise restraint into the when you're in the pardes, because there is no way to know how you're going to be tempted. And temptation, mental temptation, is a part of the mystical vision. And you have to have control while you're in it, or you could end up uh, in a terrible end. Here's a similar thing. This is in the Babli. This is the Tosefta. But in the Babli, we, we have a, a Baraita, which is more or less like this one, not the same. And therefore, it's introduced with one of these Baraita uh, indicators, Tanurabana. Now, this is why I'm quoting this here. I won't repeat the stuff that's identical. So Rabbi Akiva was kind of like the team captain. They were more or less his peers. Uh, it wasn't a traditional student-teacher relationship, but he was like the leader, of course, of sorts. So he said, when you get to the stones of pure marble, altomeru ma'im ma'im. Don't say ma'im ma'im. We'll explain what this means in a minute. Mishum shene'emar dober shekarim He who speaks lies cannot be seated in front of my eyes. Means if you want to see something about Borei Olam and his ma'asim, you can't be a liar. Which means you can't make serious errors, in this case, in Ma'asa Bereshit. But we'll see what that means. This uses a slightly different Lashon, Rabbi Akiva, Nichnas B'Shalom B'Yasa B'Shalom. That's more referring to the mental journey, not to this mashal of going above the Kodesh HaKodashim and the Aliyah and being lowered in. He entered B'Shalom, which means he did his uh, Harsa'ah, I'm sorry, his pitiha was Bishalom, ended well. And also, he left Bishalom. 
Sha'alu and Ben Zoman. Now here's, what did they see? So we all know that they came to a horrible end and Ben Zoman went crazy. What happened to him? So here you see, they asked him, it must be the other three during this collective experience. Mahu Is it mutar to castrate a dog? So that sounds like an innocuous comment. There's a pasuk in Vaikra about the korbanot. Here it is. You cannot offer as a korban any, any animal that is, their reproductive system is destroyed for whatever reason. Not only that, it, not only that it shouldn't, can't be used at the temple. Outside the temple. You shouldn't do it. it means you can't make uh, castrate animals at all. So what did we do with bulls? We, we never had a thing as a gelding horse or a uh, ox, which means a, a, a bull who's been castrated. So we had to learn by force of necessity of these misfot how to be bull whispers and horse whispers. We had to be able to calm psychologically a regular stallion with full of testosterone and a bull full of testosterone. And we were able to understand how to do that. And this misfile forced us. That's a side point though. So why are you asking Ben Zoma in the Pardes about Saruse Kalba? So you heard this thing, Etnan Zona Umhir Keleb, the price or the pay of a whore and the cost of a dog cannot be used to donate to the temple. Now, as far as our halakha is concerned, we take Kaleb literally. But the real meaning, the original meaning of a kalba was a homosexual prostitute, a man who played a woman. And that was what he was offering. And so just like the, the fare or hire of a female prostitute cannot be donated to the mikdash, nor can the hire of a homosexual prostitute. And maybe they would they would uh, castrate them so that it would the, the role would be better played. So they're asking him about sexuality in a way. Now, why is that? Because when you enter the pardes, you must use your entire soul, including your unconscious. And part of apophasis that I've been talking about for the first three classes is to cleanse your unconscious in a certain way of certain archetypes or imaginations. If they're still in your mind, because the experience, the mystical experience is so profound and it, it permeates your entire soul, if you have what Carl Jung calls archetypes in your deep unconscious that you've suppressed, thinking that you're a rationalist and I'm an intellectual Jew and I'm a critical reader, and all you did is shove them down because you wouldn't, you would never critically read your own soul, your own psyche. You're too busy reading external books and making explanations. Wonderful, but that has a negative. If you go into the mystical experience like that, they will come up to the surface and occlude your vision. And that's what happened. More. Another. So this was happening at the very same time that the Arba'an Nikhnisula part of this. So to be Hoshua, therefore, we get the hint. He's kind of overseeing, but he's not doing the, the traditional transmission. He's on a ma'ala in the Har Habayit. So I think 
a high place. He's getting ready to descend to the Merkava himself. And he sees Benzoma, and Benzoma, who's his student, didn't stand in front of uh, Rabbi Yehoshua. So Rabbi Yehoshua tells him, where are you coming from and where are you going? As we say in Arabi, I was looking, that's a term that means uh, to, you say, to look at mystical subjects. I was looking, you know, in the original creation story in Bereshit, um, after, after the rakia is established, there is mine above the rakia and mine below the rakia, which refers to Earth, right? Uh, it could refer to many, many planets in, in the universe, but from the point of view of our story, we only know about at that point. We only know there's a planet like Earth with people on it, et cetera. So I was looking, considering, he means, what's the difference between the upper waters and the lower waters? You remember from the Pesukim, they're, they're separated. So that means something happened. They're no longer identical. They're no longer both pieces of the original Mayim. Neither of them is the original Mayim, but they both morphed into something else. And there's no difference there's no distance between them except shalosh espao, it's like nothing, right? So he took the word merahefet, which means hovering, but that's the original mind. That's not the mind after the change, or after the habdalah. He takes that as like a dove that hovers over her babies but doesn't touch the nest so what is the problem here Ben Zuma is positing that there's only a geographic distance and a minimal one of that between the Maim Ha'el Yonim which make, became something else and the Maim Atahmanim which is like water on, on the planet earth that's a mistake they underwent a substantive change they're of a different quality completely Rabbi Hoshua said to his students who would that be the other three, right? So we get from this story that they, the four didn't just, they weren't just cowboys. They, they marched in all on their own. Somehow to be Yehoshua is tutoring them, but he's giving them a wide berth. That's what's going on in this particular mystical transmission. Adain ben bahos. Ben is still outside, which means he's, he, he's not going to get into the, Temple precinct, let alone the Kodesh Kodashim. He's not gonna, he's not gonna make it, he's not properly prepared. Ben Zama succeeded in entering the orchard, but failed to find the temple's gate. The topic of his opening dialogue, the, the, therefore, if you can't get through the gate, the Sha'ar of the Ben Hamikdash, you're not gonna get into the Kodesh Kodashim. The topic of his opening dialogue was the separation between the waters taking place on the second day of creation. When he was asked by Rabbi Yehoshua to explicate, he dwelt on the distance between the waters. According to Harambam, the mistake consisted in believing that the separation between the upper and lower waters was only spatial, both retaining the same original nature. In reality, their separation involved a radical change in their respective natures, just like the separation of light and darkness, or and Hoshech on the first day. Out of the, whatever was originally called mind, different substances were created. Rabbi Akiva's warning, when you reach marble stones, do not say mine, mine, 
was to correct Benzema's mistake. How did he know that that was his mistake? I don't know how. He was observing or he knew him or whatever. The water above heaven was not the same as the water below heaven. A radical change had taken place. The upper water was transformed into a substance designated marble stone. Therefore, it would be false to designate them by the same name. Hence, it would be Akiva's warning. Do not say mine, mine. Okay, the third member of the group was Elisha bin Abuya. According to the version preserved by Hanabam, the rabbis applied to him the verse, Devash Masata uh, Eat only what you can, but less than sebi'a, less than satiety, right? Because you never know your point of satiety if you're eating, you know, strawberry shortcake. Less, so you should eat. And Hanabam says this in Hechod De'od, whenever you eat, don't eat to being satiated, eat to being less than it. Uh, means he trespassed the boundaries of his understanding. Therefore, he cut some of the plants, to take a further look. The plants are the fundamental teachings or words of the Torah that are planted by the ancient Hachamim. Elisha bin Abuya, not only did he not further develop the plants, but he cut some of them out. He undid them. Means he made himself less intelligent than he was. He delighted his eyes with the esoteric vision, became lustful, and engaged in sexual promiscuity. We'll see in a moment. After exiting the orchard, he propositioned a prostitute to prove to her that he was no longer, or he wasn't, the famous scholar known as Elisha, because she recognized him. He uprooted a radish on the Shabbat and ate it, and she said, oh, it must have been Elisha Ahayah. That's why he's called Ahayah. So I'm just noting, a failed mystical vision brings up sexual lust both in the imagination, like we saw with Benzoma, and I don't think I read it for you, but the other thing was, ah, after he answers about the Kalba, then they ask him, Shalom with Benzoma, second question. And here's an interesting question. What about a pregnant virgin? Can she marry a Kohen Gadol? Why would he be talking about a pregnant virgin? This is Roman Palestine. This is there are Christians at the time. Was there a myth that Christianity adopted? Yes, absolutely. The Mithra myth, where there's a pregnant virgin, gives birth to a god, but a man, a god, a man, all this kind of conflict. So Benzoma was sexual type archetypes arise in him. Elisha Aher leaves the vision and he's full of some kind of energy. He doesn't know what to do with it. It comes out in a sexual way. Uh, here we see a similar thing. We have seen this movie before. You remember that the Shibarim Zekenim, including Nadab and Abihu, they, this is in Pirashad Mishpatim, they saw God, they had a mystical vision of Borei Olam at post Har Sinai, or right afterwards. And they saw God, and lo and behold, under God's feet was a kind of sapphire brick He's like, imagine bricks made out of pure, clear, radiant sapphire gems. And they were like clear, pure, like the, like the light blue of the sky. That's a negative because the next pasuk says, and nonetheless, to these princes of Israel, God didn't do anything. They saw God, a mystical vision, 
but they, they couldn't really bring it out properly. They did not uh, unlike Rabbi Akiva. So they had to do something physical. They had to do something to satisfy a, a desire. So they ate and drank. So that's, that's a similar thing. It was a negative. Uh, some commentaries on the Hamash try to make apologetics. Don't believe them. That's what's happening here. Harabam makes a whole thing about this in the Moren Bochim, I think part one, chapter five or six, maybe seven. You can find it there. Uh, I'm just going to read this last part about um, Aher. So Amar, so here's what happened. I'll, I won't translate everything, but I'll tell you more or less what happened. He has a vision where he sees Metatron, who is a Malach, which in rabbinic thinking, he's kind of a messenger of Borea Sometimes you don't see God himself, but you see Matatron. Elisha Aher mistook Metatron not as a symbol, symbolizing God, but as an independent entity, like you take the symbol as something real, not unlike taking words and thinking they have power, because words really are only symbolic. You hear a word, it points to a concept in your mind. But some people, like some Mekubalim, think that if you recite the right Hebrew words, that does something, like the, the myth of Rumpelstiltskin. If you know the name, you have some power, right? Or the uh, sorcerer's apprentice. If you can say the right word, you can have magical things happen, right? So he mistook the symbol of God for an independent entity, and he he was tempted by what they call shetereshiot. That's the a minor god and a less and a, and a major god. That's like a Persian idea, and so he got involved with that. He then heard, I think, from the lesser god from Metatron. He heard a batkol that says, Ahar can never do Teshuvah. He made a mistake in thinking that that was irrevocable. He, mis- he misunderstood what it said. So, Amar, speaking about himself in the third person, after he left the Pardes, he says, well, now, since that guy, meaning me, uh, lost that world, means Olam Habba, I might as well enjoy this world. He went on to a horrible, Tarbudra is a bad culture, literally, but it means he, he was totally devolved. So he's chasing all over kind of physical pleasures. The first thing he finds outside of the Pardes is a whore. He solicited her. Aren't you Elisha ben Abuya? This must have been Shabbat which makes sense you would do the, the mystical vision in the Pardes on Shabbat. That's when people study Torah, they have time, etc. So he pulls up a radish growing from the ground, and he gave it to her. who she goes, the Elisha ben Abuya that I know would never pick, this is a mamash, asur de oraita, I mean, that's koser, you know, that's a complete milacha. This Elisha ben Abuya would never do that. Must be this guy is somebody else who looks like him. That's the point. So the rabbis offered the following illustration. 
a, a model to what may this be compared to a royal orchard. There's the part of this having an upper chamber built on the top. What can a man do? Take a glimpse, providing that he would not nourish his eyes. Shelo yazin et from him. That's like a pure imaginary pleasure. You're not perceiving anything, but it looks like you're taking a peek. It looks like something good. You just can't stop eating the honey. The model conveys the lure present in esoteric discourse. Upon crossing into the orchard, one may choose a wrong perspective and fall prey, this should say fall, to the temptation of a forbidden insight insinuated by the expression yazim et ana. That's a forbidden pleasure. It's a purely imaginary one. This is what happened to Ben Zoma and Elisha Um Okay, so let's do this. This is the end of the first part, which is the Arba Anechesula Pardes. So this is important, a little bit complicated, but very important. To illustrate the crossroads structuring this crisis, the crisis of entering the esoteric realm, the rabbis offered a second model. Rather than to tread on one of the paths lying ahead, the chart, let's just say charting, let's fix that, of a new path is required. In our terms, this means that the only way outside the orchard to leave the shalom is through the realm of subjectivity, which is why I put the first slide up. Since subjectivity cannot be mediated, it cannot be constructed on the basis of someone else's knowledge or authority. Nobody can tell you what your subjective response should be. You have to step up and find it. By crossing into the orchard and looking at things from within, the student places himself outside the realm of objectivity. See, this is seeing the mystery of God and creation on his own. The crisis of absolute choice is bound up with the specific subjectivity of each individual. So just like Moshe Rabbeinu cannot tell Rabbi Akiva what, how to connect the Kitarim, nobody can tell anybody how to do that, how to, how to have a mystical vision. There's no protocol. There's no content we can tell you. It's your content. It cannot be processed by a superior authority that would finish the student's unconcluded chapters. Because it cannot be structured on someone else's experience, it involves the final breach of the teacher-student relation. In this manner, direct perception and esoteric insight is affected. Do you ever see the movie The Karate Kid? If you study with me, you know I love it. So there's a point where in the beginning, before he starts studying karate, or just as he's starting, Mr. Miyagi, who's the teacher, uh, does bonsai trees, those small Japanese trees that you train in a certain way. And although they're very small, they look like a big full-grown tree. That's an, an art. And so Mr. Miyagi says, Daniel says, he hands him the scissors, Mr. Miyagi. And Daniel says, I don't know what to cut. What should I cut? He's trying to ask the teacher how to make a tree, but in bonsai culture the tree you cut is a reflection of your own individuality nobody can tell you what to cut so mr miyagi says oh daniel-san the close eye see what you see see tree ah, open eye now cut the tree mr miyagi doesn't even know what he saw and he doesn't need to know and he doesn't want to know daniel has to cut the tree that he sees he can't try to cut the tree that mr miyagi cut even though he likes it. Same idea. The crisis of subjectivity involves charting a new road and treading upon a path that no one else has trod before. In this specific way, an esoteric insight is necessarily subjective 
and subjectivity is necessarily esoteric. This principle is illustrated with a second model. They further presented another model. To what may this be compared? To a street leading to two paths, one of fire and the other of snow. If you would turn here, you'd be consumed by the fire. If you would turn there to the other side, you would be consumed by the snow. Well, those are the only two paths that are out of the pardes. What is one to do? He must walk in the middle of those two paths where there is no path. He's creating a path, providing that he would not turn either here or there. Okay. Um, so now the rest of the slides are about Kabbalah. Uh, one point here, and this is why we ended on this slide, in the Pardes. The big fundamental difference between rabbinic mysticism and Kabbalah is this. Kabbalah teaches you content. It tells you, it hands over the secret teachings. The Zohar is supposedly a bunch of secret teachings that you read. Whose subjectivity is being exercised? The author. The reader can't see esoteric insight that the author of the Zohar saw or any other book. The Bahir, whatever you want to say. So that's a problem. That's how you know it's a whole different kind of mysticism than was ever existed before. Uh, now, what is Kabbalah? And where did it come from? So you have to know a little bit of history. From late antiquity and throughout the Middle Ages, there were circles of Jews all over the Galut who were devoted to rabbinic learning. These circles were independent of the yeshivot and Babel. Some of the students were merchants whose travels brought them into contact with yeshivot and had the opportunity to become acquainted with the teachings and writings of the Geonim. Some may have actually attended the Babylonian yeshivot and then returned home before completing their studies. At one time, through the Kala institution, which I've spoken about before, the yeshivot exercised some supervision over these circles, although they were independent, kind of, you know, let's study together kind of things all over the place. I mean, in Western Europe we're talking about. With the waning of the yeshivot from the ninth century on, these contacts weakened. Consequently, in regions culturally and geographically distant from Babel, populist conceptions of rabbinic Judaism emerged in the realms of faith, spirituality, and cult. That means how you perform the you know, rituals. Some of these developments had more to do with local folklore and sacrality than Torah. In fact, in his book, Contra Judaios, Agobar, who was the Archbishop of Lyon, that's in southern France, southeast France, noted that French Jews believed in the corporeality of God and anthropomorphism. And the source of this, oh, and in Ha'ayegaon, in his Tishibor HaGeonim HaHadashor, it's a book that came out about 15 years ago. Uh, he, he says, clearly, people holding this type of belief, corporeality of God, are minim. Now you know where Harambam got it. Now we know there's a whole mahloka between the Re'abad. He has a note when Harambam says it that's very critical, but Ha'egam was the source. So now let's see. I don't think, uh, okay. Okay, we'll just read the second paragraph. Already by the beginning of the 11th century, there are Talmudists in the Iberian Peninsula that opposed the intellectual traditions and values, making what later historians would designate the golden age of Spain. That's a Weiss Andalusian tradition. A second movement rose in Germany as a reaction to the first crusades. In response to the atrocities committed in the name of religion by the Christians, 
Jews countered with the creation of a heroic ideology promoted by hymnologists, that's Paitani, and chronicles under the rubric Kedoshim. means they were about Kedoshim, who actually were burned, who were martyred themselves. And there's a name you may have heard of called Bakon. It stands for, it's an acronym, Ben Kedoshim Venisrafim. So the, the, the descendants of those people who had died uh, were, were venerated, right? This term, usually translated as saints, actually stood for heroes with all the paraphernalia that European folklore attached to heroic behavior and ethos. This ideology spread south to France. The result was a new religious conception, which came to be known as Kabbalah. The ideology embodied in the Kedoshim literature is these very lengthy poems. Some of them are still recited in the Ashkenazi service of Kippur. If you've ever been to an Ashkenazi service on Kippur, I have several times. There are these, Musaf takes a very long time, and there are very long piyutim dispersed throughout the Musaf. Well, okay. Mass neurosis is contagious. The lunacy of the crusaders, vented as religious devotion, resulted in the immolation of thousands of Jews. The impact on the mind of the victims was horrendous. Not just that many died, but the mentality that left the trauma, the PTSD, is like worse than being in uh, uh, Vietnam at the worst time of it. Imagine a soldier who comes back from Vietnam and he can't function anymore. The, the trauma is so great. That's what happened to them. Traditionally, Jews were exceptionally careful not to absorb their persecutors' ideology. But according to the hymnologists and chroniclers, this time things were different. If we are to believe these writers, the religious zeal of the crusaders became paradigmatic of spiritual valor and determination in the mind of the victims, those are the Jews. In their efforts to show that their own faith was second to none, some responded by murdering their own children to save them from apostasy and forced conversion. I went into this last time, you may recall. Instead of being commensurate, Jewish chroniclers and hymnologists portrayed these parents, as well as their children, as kedoshim, models to envy and emulate, rather than assist with solving the trauma, to reintegrate them into a normal life. That's not what happened. They were heroicized and became a model for others. Uh, there's a, one piyut that has this value system in it called imafes, we read it in the Selichot, the Sephardi read it. I don't know if anybody else does. It's written by Yaakov in Regensburg, though, from the Rhineland. And it has very graphic, detailed descriptions of what Abraham was going to do to his hawk, which he never did, but he, what he was going to do. And I think it's trying to echo, they, they tried to connect the murder of their own children to Akedadi's hawk somehow. Uh, okay. At the beginning of what became known as Hasidei Ashkenaz, or the pious of Germany, in the Rhineland, the mystical element was sober, focusing primarily on the prayers and rituals. However, later, when Hasidut crossed over into southern France and Spain, things changed. Principally, rituals began to be perceived in terms of theurgical manipulations. That's where words have power, and if you say the right word, uh, you can uh, effect some cosmic effect up in the heavens. To justify this perception, a new religion was created under the general rubric Kabbalah. It centered around the kind of cosmic sacrality that still lingered among peasants in Southern Europe, as well as on folklore and other miscellaneous. 
An important factor in the formulation of Kabbalah was the belief in the corporeality of God. That's why it was so tenaciously defended by the Rabbah. Divine anthropomorphism. God has this. He's like this. He's like that. He wants this. You hear people today even say, what is God's will? You have no clue. There's no way to answer that question. You shouldn't even ask it. You don't know. You And you will never know what God's will is. All you know is the berit. God said, do this berit. That's basta. That should be enough. You don't need to know what God's thinking because the word think doesn't even apply to God. That's a, a positive attribute. That's a projection. Etc. noted by Agobard and the Karaites, both of whom noticed that the Rabbinites from Western Europe were anthropomorphic and even the Karaim in Israel found this distasteful. Okay, I'm going to skip this thing, but if you want to read, there's someone named Lipman Badoff who wrote a nice book about Kabbalah and the Rhineland experience. He thinks Kabbalah was a, re, a response to somehow cope with the PTSD of the First Crusade. Uh, let's see. Oh, here's one point. Let's see. Okay, here's an important thing. There were decisive consequences. Oh, I'll start here. A major step in the promotion of Kabbalistic ideologies and the mystification of Jewish texts was reforming the synagogue. To make room for the long chanting of these hymns about martyrdom, etc., the recitation of the Targum was abrogated offhandedly as if it were a trifle matter of little value. You want to go more details, see Haham Fa'ur's Horizontal Society, Appendix 61. There were decisive consequences to this reform, which deserve to be explained precisely because they remained unnoticed. If we are, come to, if we are to come to grips with the strategic significance of the step erasing the Targum, an adequate conception of the Kabbalistic ideology is essential. Briefly into the point, this researcher, Mirkia Eliad, who wrote a book called The History of Religious Ideas, he was a goy, described it as follows. To the sanctification of life by the medium of the work and rites prescribed by the Talmud, the Kabbalists added the mythological valorization of nature and man. What do you mean you mythologically valorize nature? Have you ever heard these parties where you say some berachot and you uplift the elocus of the table or the chair or this plastic bottle? They exist, folks, they exist. Probably more people are doing that than studying surat uh, al and the Andalusian tradition. I guarantee it. It's, uh, it's unfortunate, but we got to have our eyes open. That's what you mean by valor, mythological valorization of nature. A, chem, a, 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 a molecule of hydrogen peroxide doesn't have spirituality, whatever that means. So no matter how many incantations and how many berachot you recite, you're not going to uplift the spiritual madrega of hydrogen peroxide. It just is what it is, what it is, right? The importance of mystical experience and even certain themes of Gnostic origin. One can discern in this phenomenon of opening and this effort at revalorization, the nostalgia for a religious universe where the Hebrew scriptures and the Talmud coexist with a cosmic religiosity and with Gnosticism and mysticism. Basically, the Kabbalah introduced European Gnostic elements into Judaism. So said the Kisunim Ras. And there's one more point, and this is important. Kabbalah appeared in the very places and at the exact time when the Maimonidean controversy was roaring, when the Rabbeinu Yonah Cheronde and Ramban 
solicited the, the Franciscans in southern Spain, the Catholic priests, to burn the, the uh, Sefer Mada and the Moreno Mukim of Haramba, which later led to them burning the Talmud. Generally, subjects are studied separate. Oh, so, all right. Jewish heroic ideology penetrated the Iberian Peninsula in a three-pronged movement, three elements, anti-Mamonidean, Kabbalah, and rabbis of France, the latter usually referred to by these fancy terms. Generally, these subjects are studied separately, these three elements, as if they're disconnected from one another. Attention should be paid, however, to the fact that Spanish Kabbalah originated in the cities of Gerona and Barcelona, the hotbed of anti-Mamonidean activities. The link connecting these two movements, neglected by contemporary historians, is rabbis of France. That's a term that Haramban and Rabbeinu Yonah invoke repeatedly. The rise of this secret lore, noted the great historian Heinrich Gretz, coincides with the time of the Maimonistic controversy through which it was launched into existence. Here's the site right here. Okay, now I'm going to skip this in a matter of time. Uh, Ramban believed that the very concept of religion rules out the admission of nature as an operative force. The world is affected by mysterious powers. The premature death of an embryo, for instance, is as wondrous as any of the miracles of scripture. In both cases, the hand of God had directly intervened against nature. That is why belief in Torah should equal negation of nature. And you could read this later, but this is what he says more or less. Here's the, here's the, the, the mistaken premise of Ramban here. There is no nature. You can't say the word nature with a capital N in Hebrew. It entered Hebrew, Teba, through Arabic. No one ever said nature, ever. We always attributed all what you call natural phenomena to Borei Olam himself. And as we now know through quantum mechanics and modern physics, there's some wiggle room. It's not, there is no determined universe. There's a, a probabilistic universe where the probabilities can change at any time God wants them to change. So we're just hanging there and nothing's determined. There's, there's room. But Einstein could not accept that. He said, what do you mean to Niels Bohr? God is playing dice with the universe. And Niels Bohr, who was also Jewish by his mother, said, who are you to tell God what to do? And that's really the Jewish answer. Uh, so according to Haramban, no one could believe in the Torah and the validity of nature at all. Uh, here's what he says now. I am amazed at Maimonides, Crypt Ramban, who minimized miracles and maximized nature. But once again, Haramban doesn't, doesn't believe in nature, as you say. This was also the this dispute between David Nieto and some other people in the famous controversy around 1705, 1704, where he made a speech in Sha'ar HaShamayim in, uh, in, I think, London. And someone complained that he's attributing, uh, worshiping nature or something like that. It was a whole hullabaloo. But, but David Nieto was expressing the uncorrupted Jewish, original Jewish view where there is no nature. So if we say, then we attribute that to God. Okay, now let's see. Uh, now we'll skip that. 
So Haramban has this thing about secret names of the Torah. That there's, well, I'll go back here. We have a tradition, Kabbalah, he says, that the entire Torah from beginning to end consists of magical names. The legible text was transmitted in writing by Moses to the people. The hermetic subtext comprising holy names was transmitted to Moses orally. In every section of the Hamash, he wrote, there is the name by which that thing was created or made or how that thing was realized, as if there's power in the name. If you know the name, you understand the, cre the creation of the thing the name uh, points to. King Solomon's wisdom, too, came through the possession of these names. Likewise, Moses brought the ten plagues and split the seed because of a special name that was revealed to him. Knowledge of a certain name will empower an individual to resurrect the dead. Another produces the secret miracles made for the pious. It is well known to many, he solemnly declared, that these names were used by the pious of the generations. In this fashion, the pious knew how to kill and to resurrect, to desolate and to destroy, to demolish and to annihilate, to build and to plant. He's paraphrasing here in the eye. So according to Harambam, and he's a good representative of the school of Kabbalah, of certainly of Catalonia, where he lived, it's all in the names. It's all in the words. Words have power. We, today, uh, in the science of epistemology, there's a name for that, and it's called nominal realism, that a horse is called horse because it has an essential horsiness, and the name is almost precedes the actual thing. There was these names in the, in the platonic land of the ideal forms, and we figured out the names, and if you're from a, a, a barbaric culture, your, your word for horse is inferior. Okay, so we need to take a five-minute break, and we have maybe six more slides, but I have to go now. Right now, it's sunset in uh, New Jersey, so I need to write the, light the Nerot or Ner Hanukkah. So we'll take a five-minute break, and I'll be right back. And then we'll finish, and that'll be that. Okay, so I'm going to, Thank you, mute. Going to mute until that happens. Well, I'll leave it. All right.
Okay, and we're back. Let me and know. We wanted to hear you recite the baracha. We, we were hoping we could hear you. Oh, well, it's, this is my office, and it has to be outside by the front door, so pretty That's far cool. away. Sorry. Okay, okay I'm ready to, to begin again. Or yes, we... Okay, good. Let's see. So we were just saying here that according to Haramban, the entire Torah is from beginning to end consists of magical names. So how come nobody ever heard of this before? There's no Masechet magical names, right? Moses transmitted the secret names to superior men who managed to pass them on through unbeknownst channels to the hermetic circles in and around Catalonia. Araban writes this in his introduction to the Pirush al-Hatorah. Eventually, this textual-logical approach affected the core concept and function of the liturgy. The prayer book was transfigured into a series of strategically placed series of conjurations made up of the rearranged consonants of the text designed to maneuver and control the realm of the divine. Some conjurations have a comical flavor. The following is one example. Uh, by the way, have you ever heard of this thing called the Shem Yehud? The Shem Yehud Kudsha Berichu Shchinteh. So that conceives of God as having two aspects. Now, if you ask, people will say, oh, it doesn't mean he's two parts, and so it doesn't violate Adonai Echad, which is both uniqueness and integration. It's like one being. He's not like us. He doesn't have lungs and adrenal glands and uh, bladder and uh, heart, and the heart doesn't have four chambers. God is nothing like that. So he doesn't have parts. So when we say Yehud Yehud, means he's thoroughly integrated. Like, he just is. There's no parts to him. There's no aspects. Just is what he is. And we cannot know that, right? We have to admit that. So, uh, but the Kabbalah posits that God has aspects. Uh, some are male, some are female. This particular pair is Kudsha Berihu. That's like the, a male aspect of God. And his Shekhinah, which is a female. And they need to be unified or reunited because there was a crisis at the time of creation where aspects of God were scattered. Uh, Lubavitch has a lot of this with the, they take things out of Kilipa. They said they took it out of Klipa, this kind of thing. Uh, the Habiyot, there was different barrels and barrels within barrels like nested Russian dolls. They have all kinds of theories. And so into the, especially the Sephardic tefillah, we have all these L'Shem Yehuds, where we, we posit that if you do something correctly, or you recite a tefillah correctly, that God's male aspect, Kudsha Berichu, will be reunited with his Shekhinah, L'Shem Yehud, for the sake of uniting God and his Shekhinah. Now, here's my fundamental question that bothered me since I was a teenager. Who made the rules by which God is split and reunited? And why is some guy in some little town in the United States, at some tefillah, you know, Arvich al-Shabbat, why is what he says in words do something cosmically that affects the very God we're purporting to pray to? Who we just got finished saying, Adonai Ahad. That was a conundrum I could not get my head around and no one was, was able to answer it. So here's a, one of the conjurations that have a comical flavor. 
Dikarnosa. You may have heard of this. It's in the Sephardic uh, Tefillah for Rosh Hashanah. Uh, a most solemn prayer pronounced at the end of most Sephardic services. But originally it was not at the SNP. I don't know what they did now. On the night of Rosh Hashanah. Invokes the great and holy name Dikarnosa. Laman Hashem HaGadol Be'akadosh Dikarnosa. That is supposed to supposedly encoded in the subtext of two scriptural passages. Now, pay attention, for the Kabbalist, the subtext of the Torah is like magical names, where you rearrange the same consonants to get the names. When in the first slide I put up tonight, the subtext of the Torah is something that somebody can connect to misvod or to apparently peripheral details of different misvod or pisukim to come up with something new, like because that's a din mufla, by the way. That's what <laughs> what God was telling Rabbi Akiva. God was telling Moses about the midrash of Rabbi Akiva. So there's different ways of positing subtexts, and what you do with them. The Kabbalistic one is is uh, a set of secret names. Now you're going to laugh if you don't know this. The holy name Dikarnosa. This superlative magical name is nothing more than the Spanish Dea Cornosa, or fleshy, probably in the sense of a portly goddess. Have you seen those ancient fertility goddesses that look like fat women? You know, they first dis discovered in the Semitic lands, right? So Dea Cornosa is a fleshy goddess. Let us not forget that until recently, only plump ladies were regarded as sexually attractive. On the influence of Kabbalah and the Sephardic liturgy, particularly after the expulsion, see the note of Stefan Reif, Judaism and Hebrew prayer, and in this little book there. Okay, now, I want to tell you something very, very important. There's an academic and a religious myth. The doctrine of the Sefiroth, which dominates the entire gamut of modern Sephardic prayers, rituals, and symbologies, has its origins in prior pre-Kabbalistic Jewish literature. That is the myth. And everybody who talks about the Kabbalah will tell you the following. The Sefiroth that are described in the medieval French Sefer HaBahir. That's the first time that Sefiroth in the Platonic sense, Platonic emanations. Why are there 10? I don't even think they know why there's 10. Maybe because just humans think in tens, which is an arbitrary thing, not an you know, a universal spirituality that was there before man ever came about, right? Uh, they, so they connect the Sefirot of the Bahir with the Sefer Yesirah because the Sefer Yesirah originally was written in the second century and it comes from the schools of Hahamim. So they wanted to connect the two. Every modern historian, every rabbi I've ever heard talk about it, I've never, it says that the Sefirot in the Bahir are the same as the Sefirot in Sefer Yesirah. So you see, it's a very ancient idea. It's not. Mekubalim prayed during the Amida for some Berachot to one Sefirah and for other Berachot to another Sefirah. And you want to know the details? Look in Teshuvot Harivash, famous Haham from northern Spain, later went to North Africa, number 157. In Sefer Yesirah, a book commented upon by, Haram, by Maimonidians, such as Se'adya Gaon in Yehudal Bargelone, a Sefirah, just as the English word cipher, denotes numerals. Sefer Yisirah speaks of 32 paths of wisdom. These are the 22 consonants of the Hebrew language and the 10 ciphers of the decimal system 
beginning with zero. By the way, in, in old America, and especially in rural areas like in Tennessee and Kansas and Oklahoma, when you went to school in the 1800s, like Little House on the Prairie, they taught you ciphering, which there, was their word for mathematics or arithmetic. They called those ciphers. And you, you learn how to cipher. Comes from the Arabic word zifr, which means zero. There are 22 consonants. So this is all arbitrary, though. There are only 32 paths of wisdom if you're speaking to people who speak a Semitic language and who use the decimal system. If you're talking to the Mayas, which may have many more or less consonants, and certainly many more numbers, I think they have 59 because they are a sexagesimal, not a decimal, but a sexagesimal number system, then you would have 98 paths of wisdom. It's arbitrary, right? It's not, as they say in Yiddish, geboit in the oilum. It's not internal part of the inner mechanism of the universe, right? Okay. Does it make sense, though, to pray to a numeral, like something like, now I'm channeling um, that guy, Norm MacDonald, Allah Hashalom, he died recently, but you know, he would, does it make sense to pray to a numeral? Oh, six, so we'll go something like this. Oh, six, ye of great evenness and incorporating two fundamental odds, save my wretched soul. And you can make nice tefillot to eight, to 99, whatever you like, right? So that's praying to the sefirot. So Sefer Yesirah was originally written in the second century, but our version dates from the seventh. Sefer Yisra states that the Aser Sefirot stand on Belima, which is a compound word of Beli and Ma, without and what? means without anything. This is describing nothing more than zero, without which there can be no infinite sequence of numbers. That's why the Romans got stuck, because they couldn't count to more than a thousand or a couple of thousand, right? The decimals, oh. And, and if you have zero, you can have an infinite sequence of numbers and you can quantify any relationship between data values. Like you want to compare uh, the wavelength of light, which is in nanometers, 10 to the minus nine, to the size of the universe, which, or, the, or a light year, which is God of God knows what, 10 to the 25. You can get some kind of, you can get your head around the relative size if you have zero. If you don't have zero, which is just a marker for, for no number there, but it's, that's the place you can't count. The decimal system thus starts, as do all sequences in modern computing, with zero and ends with nine. In computers, you don't go one, two, three, four. You go zero, one, two, three, right? And you never have 10, right? For rabbinite Judaism, reality is intelligible to humans, but only if both words and a quantifying language, mathematics, are used. The ten sefirot of Yesira refer not to platonic emanations, as in the Bahir, which if you look very carefully, no one controls it. Although God is somehow emanating in, in various layers down to man from up in the insof, it's, he can't control it. It's not like he created the emanations. It's kind of part of the godly system. Now you're getting all this double talk that starts to sound a lot like multiple aspects and multiple gods, right? We can explain energy and light as concepts, but we cannot explain a speed or express how matter is convertible to energy in mere words. You need both words and concepts and math to say E equals MC squared, right? And C itself requires numbers. Uh, let's see. This is, let's go to this one. Concerning the divine name Elohim, 
Rabbeinu Bahya Bar Asher. You, you've all heard of Rabbeinu Bahya. is a nice pirush on the, on the Humash. He was a student of Ibn Adrete Harishpa. We've all heard of him. He explained the following. And, and there's a problem with these hahamim, these Christian Spanish hahamim. They, on one page, they'll say something nice. And on the other page, they'll say something very anti-Mamanidian. And to reconcile the two with, let's say, Ha'ayagaon, Rabbeinu Hananel, is impossible. And you don't know what to do. And I was 13 years old when I went to the Denver Yeshiva, which is in the Lakewood system. And they keep telling me about all these great Sephardics. They would say Sephardi, these Sephardi, Meforshim on the Talmud. Most of those Meforshim from the Rishonim are Sephardim. You should be proud. But when you look at it, they're all from Christian Spain. And they all pass the, you know, the underlying trauma or the underlying belief system, which in many ways undoes the very Torah that they're trying to comment on. And it's, it's a, a circular, never resolved internal contradiction. So here's something Rabbi Bahya says about the divine name Elohim. Rabbi Bahya explains, according to the Kabbalah, this name comprises two words, El plus Him. They are God. And these, this they, are encoded in the Yod of Elohim, because it's usually spelled with the Yod there, which in Hebrew numerical value stands for the number 10. So they 10, meaning the Sefirot, are God. Uh, Abraham Abul Afia, perhaps the most serious mystic of the time, also from Christian Spain, reproached uh, Reb, uh, Ibn Adret Harishba for sponsoring such a doctrine. And he wrote the following. Accordingly, let me point out to you that the masters of Kabbalah and Sefirot believed to profess monotheism and tried to elude the Trinitarian doctrine of the Christians. In fact, they ended making him 10, just like the Gentiles professing he is three and the three are one. Some Kabbalists say the divinity is 10 sefirot and the 10 are one. This is in a rather very rare book called Ginzeh Chochmat Kabbalah. Uh, it's a collection of essays about Kabbalah. Why is it so rare? Because it presents in some ways the pro-Maimonidean view, which was suppressed. There's no question about it. It was suppressed. The point made by a rationalist, probably in my mind, is abundantly clear. And this is quoted in Teshubot of the Rivash again, is Hakbar Sheshat, uh, 157. Whereas the Christians believe in the Trinity, the mystics believe in the Tentary, which is the Tensifiro. So here's our last slide. So, Sam, Sof Davara Kol Nishma, what are we saying here? Responding to their own spiritual bent, modern historians refrain from pointing at the connection between the triumph of the anti-Mamanideans, the rise of Kabbalah, and mass conversions to Christianity. For those of us who did remain Jewish, the centuries following, and prior to even, but following for sure, the expulsion have seen significant changes to the tefillah. You may not know this, but... Uh, in the Kiddush of Friday night, of Lel Shabbat, we erase the words, If you hear an Ashkenazi sing the Kiddush on Friday night, he says that word, those words. We don't, because the numbers of the first paragraph of the Kiddush are supposed to equal the numbers of words of the second part of the Kiddush after, you know, and so Mekubalim, took out that pasuk, but that's, that was part of the matbea, that was part of the coined phrasing that the hahamim created when they created the kiddush, so, and many, many, many other changes like that. 
okay? To halakha, halakha, all kinds of different things, like you can't wear tefillim on Horosh Mo'ed, you have to take off the tefillim for Musaf of Rosh Chodesh because you're going to say the word Keterit Nulecha. You know, the creator of the entire universe with its four trillion plus planets and the dark matter we just heard about 30 years ago and really don't even understand. He's confused because you say the word Keterit Nulecha and you're wearing tefillim when he himself said you should wear tefillim all day. It's unfathomable, right? And it's fine if you want to do that. But what, what the problem is, if you don't want to follow the new strictures, let's say you want to keep your tefillim on uh, uh, Musaf of Rosh Chodesh, everybody gets nervous. So not only we don't, most of the people don't do the misfah properly. If any small minority wants to do it properly, they get a hand, right? This is all a direct result of the Maimonidean controversy and the victory of the anti-Maimonideans. And I've said many times, Maimonidean in this sense doesn't mean anything directly to do with Maimonides. He just happens to be the last spokesman for this tradition, which starts in the Emoraim and the Tanaim and the Geonim, etc., and moves over to, to Spain and North Africa. So that's more or less the end. I just have one little piece. Uh, if you know about what Hanukkah is, it was about the victory of a small faction of Jews in a civil war against the system. Matatya and his sons, he was not one of the famous Kohen Gadol families. Uh, he was a guy in Modi'in, which was not far from, but it wasn't part of the insiders or the elites running the temple and running Yerushalayim, etc. Uh, and he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take, you have a bust of Zeus there, and he couldn't take the Jewish, not the Greek, the Jewish faction, which is the majority, who wanted to Hellenize us, who wanted us to be more uh, philosophical and universal. And th those are the people who did a surgical operation to undo their milah. So they would bring the, uh, you know, when you have a milah, there's a piriya, so the skin kind of like uh, is squeezed together below the crown of the penis. There's a surgical operation you can do to pull that forward again and make it look like you're in an arel. They did that. Kohanim, running the temple, some of them did that. And they built a, a stadium opposite Har Habayit. Maybe it was on Har Hazetim, I don't know. And they would have Olympics. Jews, organized by Jews. No one told them they had to do it. No Greeks came and forced them. They just did it. They wanted to do it. And they would run, you know, Greek Olympics were in the nude originally. That's why they did the Hamshachat uh, Orlatam, the surgical operation. It's called they pulled down back their Orla, their foreskin, the remnant, so that they could run and do Olympics and do all kinds of Greek things. That was a civil war. It's a civil war. The best description is by Elias Bickerman, who was a professor at both Columbia and the Jewish Theological Seminary. There's a great book, a gem uh, edited by Yehuda Golden called The Jewish Experience. You can get it for $5 paperback, maybe eight. And one of the essays is by Elias Bickerman. It's called The Maccabean Uprising, an interpretation. And he describes how it was a civil war. Uh, so what we all do with this knowledge that I've try to impart to anybody who's interested in these classes involves a crossroads, just like there's a crossroads when you enter the Pardes. Some would call it a crisis. Just like the issues facing Matatyahu and his sons, the answer is not to be found in any authority 
or even in the conventional institutions. Nobody can tell you what the path out of this is, or even whether there's a, a need for a path out. But yeah, that's, you have to notice that yourself. We must chart, perhaps, a new path and water, once again, the young plants planted long ago that have not been tended to in a very long while. So Hanukkah Alegre, thank you all for your kind attention. I know it's a little deep and dense. If you take my slides and you study them several times, all of the bits of information I've tried to weave together will come to you in a nice orderly fashion. Uh, all I can do is point to things. So let's see if there's any kushot, bayot. Let's see, chat, okay, chat. Nope. So it looks like we're good. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Okay. So everybody have a Hanukkah Alegre, and uh, I think my next Habura classes is next year sometime, either in March or in May. So until then, we'll see you. Acham, thank you so much. And uh, quickly on that point, we were talking about how it's impacted uh, prayer. The first paracha, the shell Hanukkah, as you know, the Benishchai introduced that we remove the shell. Yes. Uh, the Gemara and Harambam and the Rif all include, obviously, uh, and I believe the Ashkenazim also include. Yes, absolutely right. And the S&P, I was very pleased to see um, the S&P Sidur, it includes Shell. Good. And it is our custom. So if you want to know what some of the old tefillah was before Kabbalistic enhancements, you look at the Ashkenazi, not Minhag Sefarad, Sfard, but Nosach Ashkenaz itself. And let's say the Sidur Aram Sabah, or the Yemenite, or the Bene Israel, which are very close to each other. That will show you what it was like in the Mustarab world before the ex expulsados, the, the people who were expelled from Spain, came back to the East and started fiddling with the text of the Tefillah. So yes, absolutely. Right, had, had I been on the microphone, you would have heard Shel Hanukkah, of course. Yes, indeed. And likewise in my home. Very good. Thank you, Acham. Very, very, very helpful. And I can't wait to do Hazara. So please do send over the PDF or the, the presentation. Um, and Hanukkah Allegra, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Yeah, bye-bye. Until next time. That's all for now, folks. Have a great day.